Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Requiem Radio. Today, we have myself and my co-host, Hazy Hot Dialects, talking with Organic Carbon. He specializes in geologist consulting, and we will be having a great time talking to him about that subject. Hazy, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hello, everybody. It's uh, Hazy Dialects, currently going through the mist, currently in the fog of everything right now. A bit of a schizoid when I can be on myriad of social media platforms, as well as a aspiring video essayist who was joined by our, curb, our organic carbon. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to have our guest on who seems, even prior to our recording, has a very intricate knowledge of the subject matter we'll be delving into today. So I'm happy to have him here. And uh, Organic, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm a, consult a consulting geologist geophysicist. Um, I've got my undergrad in geology, my master's in geology with a specialization in, in paleontology and uh, carbonates. And then went on for my PhD, but decided not to get that due to uh, it, it takes forever. And it's hard to support a family on a grad student's income um, right now. I do consulting, I do mostly oil and gas and, and renewables and some environmental, like for a, in, with my specialty, I, I want to do paleo and I've done conodonts, which are the ancestors of like the sister group to fish. They, and they had little uh, phosphatic um, jaw structures that look kind of like teeth. And they're microscopic, and you can find them when you dissolve limestone and stuff. And they're extinct now. Um, they used to be everywhere, and they're indexed fossil for everything to be able to identify time. And then I worked on mosasaurs, which are my real love, and and those are aquatic uh, veranda lizard. Think flipper on acid. They look kind of like that. And um, then did oil and gas, which is, um, let's see. Um, did a lot of shell hazard uh, work, which is looking at the shell section when you drill an oil well, and uh, uh, let's see here, where, where we go. Yeah, there we go. And like the shell section when you when you drill an oil well, uh, you look at the hazards there, which are like faults and uh, shell water flow, which is imagine if you you're drilling an oil well and you drill into a sand body and it flows up the casing like water and it'll cause you to lose the oil well and also shallow gas which can explode and cause you to lose the well and lose the boat and uh, also do interpretation of the seabed and the shallow section I do this with 2 and 3D uh, seismic data which is super cool because I can see down several kilometers and let's see, you'd, you'd be able to see everything like a little snapshot. Uh, you produce these perfect images of what's below there and get a, a really good map idea and map at all these structures. And I also interpret what's on the seabed. And like so a 3D model like, to like get a clear understanding of it on a like, on a more like, like you can get you can get a better idea of the geometrics, like like the shape of it, in a sense. Is that correct? Oh, exactly. I can I can yeah. I can determine the shapes of the uh, of the layers and everything. Like if I see like these salt dive here, um, like imagine. Well, one of the big things we look for are is okay. All sediments get laid down uh, originally flat, 
but as it folds and you know things move, you know it buckles and warps up and down. But like it, say, I'm gonna use the Gulf of Mexico as an example. In that, it's dried out several times, and we build this big thick layer of salt, and that gets buried by the sediment. But that salt, where it's so light and gets compressed, it'll rise up through the surrounding rock uh, like a um, lava lamp. You know how you'll see the in a lava lamp, things will bubble up like tears. It'll go upwards. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 uh, is that usually due just to like um, how the chemicals react to like over a period of time that they rise to the top, or is it just a um, a byproduct of just? It's because they're right? much less dense. Because that yeah. salt is, and so it just rises up. And beneath that, the, uh, the oil and gas will get below it and become trapped because that salt's impermeable. Because the oil and gas will form in one layer, like in the in a, a rock or in a carbonate rock or something. And it, as because it gets laid down just as like little organic bits and pieces of uh, of plankton as it dies, and as it breaks down in the heat and gets compressed. That um, breaks down, becomes oil, and then leaks out. Of as that gets fractured, it'll go up, and it'll get it'll ha- it'll need to get trapped somewhere for you to get it because it, you have to have two things to to have a useful well three. You have to have have these things to be useful as a like a target to drill into. You have to have a source rock. You have to have a reservoir to hold it, and you have to have an impermeable barrier uh, seal to keep it trapped in there. And what we sounds see like is um, sounds like an extremely intricate system. Um, not to stray away from um, the processes in which you are to ascertain these materials, but I wanted to ask you the following question, and that would primarily be, what um, got you into this field of work? Because usually there's some innate inspiration, whether that be like a discovery of like how like something fundamentally works or not, um, media that inspires you, like uh, It Lives or like uh, The Land Before Time and how like um, the oh. uh, stasis period and how we got to the current years, things of that nature usually are the uh, spark that allows people to like venture into these avenues. But I would like to ask you in particular, what um, initially inspired you to get into this since you seemed very, very skilled and not only that, very, um, like very well understanding of the field you're in. So I would like to know about that a little bit. And um, what got me into it was, Pretty simple dinosaurs. I always liked dinosaurs, and I wanted, and I, I wanted to do uh, paleontology because I thought that would be perfect. I could, I could do that, and I just always loved dinosaurs as a kid. And rocks were the were the way to get into that in geology, and that was a means to the end. Yeah, go for um, it. I know that, like in terms of recent developments, we've learned that. Um... That some um, dinosaurs have had feathers, but I don't know. I just can never get over that notion that like they look like that. I just feel like the the gigantic creatures, the the gigantic lizards, just far more. Uh, even if it's fantastical to some degree, are just aesthetically far more pleasing. Well, I mean, you're gonna see like, you feel like too. Also, yeah, organic. Do you feel also that like Jurassic Park had a large role to play in that with like you know the depiction of dinosaurs like modern people? Or have we always had like this depiction, if you will, of like, you know, this is what Tyrannosaurus Rex looks like. But was that only for like, you know, a certain field? Like the layman well, didn't really even think of what's a T-Rex, you know what I mean? Yeah, the layman didn't really get it. And it's funny is that, that we've kind of came back to where we originally were. Because 
uh, initially people thought of them as being giant birds and like Noska and, and he was a Hungarian um, thought about these guys, you know, like the dinosaurs and stuff as birds. And then the, they got a plotting appearance and looked more like reptilian. And that was, but we came back to that. Now, one thing to say is they didn't, they weren't, every one of them wasn't always covered it with, you know, with feathers at every stage in their life. You know, smaller ones are going to be feathered, you know, for most of their life or all of their life, you know, for what it appears to be. But like, you know, big guys like uh, sauropods and stuff are going to be, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be, they're going to only maybe have a little bit of feathers when they're young. Cause it doesn't appear that they have feathers in the, the fossils that we found. You know, they, that stuff probably was shed because they're too big and just not really a needed because you're not, you're not going to keep a big, a big feathery appearance. Cause that's a lot of work and a lot of energy. I mean, maybe, but they're, but now dinosaurs, they are super cool and interesting as social creatures, just like, you know, anything now and like birds is the uh, live in a wild ecosystem where things aren't exactly the same as they are now. They're pretty close. But, you know, it you've got lots of predators, lots of prey, lot, lots of critters moving around. And uh, one, like, preconceived notion that we have now is, like, how few predators we see today as opposed to what used to be. And, you know, with more animals, like, you know, I look at the ecosystem and go, wow, look at what it's all missing. Because there used to be so many more critters running around. And for all our lives that we've missed that, we don't we don't see any of that. And, and like especially back in the dinosaur time, you know, in Mesozoic and before there, there's critters all over the place and they're super wild and energetic things. If you, I don't know if you've seen all the feathered stuff that come as came out of uh, China, cause they'll, they find these no. really good, well-preserved exactly. stuff that though they're, they look, they look like birds really. Uh, yes. if, it's there. It's amazing. It's hard to tell uh, the primitive birds from the advanced, um, uh, uh, theropods and stuff because uh, you know the, all like feathers are a basic condition of dinosaurs and uh, they, they kind of that comes with the territory both birds and dinosaurs had them it's only you know certain developments that make them into birds but they come ready they're almost like pre-packaged with all them all the stuff to be birds uh, and it's pretty wild because lot, lots of early birds had teeth and we, we lose that and when the asteroid, asteroid impact happens, because you only get the smaller birds that didn't have teeth. And like, you know, you had these big birds that look like, a, oh, kind of like, what do you call those things? Uh, loons, you know, in an ocean had teeth, you know, bigger than penguins and stuff. And giant things, big teeth. And it's pretty scary. And they're awesome critters. I super love that. I got another question for you along for about it. that as well. Um, how come there's some species that I know they talk about, you know, have rapid evolution and change throughout their time being here, but others simply don't quote unquote evolve at all. Like the horseshoe crab, for example, or the alligator, how they look almost like they're not from this planet. They just been around for so long. They don't change, but there's other species that has changed drastically. Do you know the reason for why some species have drastic changes and others do not? Or could you elaborate on that? I, I give you my best interpretation. Some things are just perfect for their environment. Now, the, it's not to say they don't change. There's, I mean, like horseshoe crabs are pretty much the same as they've been forever because they're just kind of perfectly suited for that niche and that works well. 
alligators, they do change a little bit and there's some variations, but you know, to the common appearance, they would look exactly the same, but you'll get, you know, slightly a different arrangement, you know, with like, you know, sizes or, you know, how the nerves move in the head a little bit or just little body proportions. And we can, we can pick out different species, sometimes different genera, but there it's a well, well suited design uh, because a lot of things look exactly like alligators because it, that's pretty much perfect for that environment because that goes all the way back to uh, like the Permian and before because we have amphibians that look exactly like alligators. And then we get we don't get alligators until, um, you know, alligator-like things, you know, mammals. I don't know, mammals, I'm sorry, uh, reptiles and, or archosaurs, which are related to dinosaurs because uh, alligators have a different heart structure and uh, are more related to dinosaurs than they are reptiles but they're um they, they come they come about in the triassic and there's lots of critters that look like alligators then because it's just the optimum shape for the environment even though they're yeah, not they're not all related at all everything yeah, kind of meets meets that form yeah i noticed something about evolution too i usually think of it in three different ways um typically it's about food source um how um effective is the genetic mutation and the way they have um and what would there be a necessity to alter it in a capacity or, or uh, evolve in a way that is far better applicable to the environment there and and the last one is i believe if i did not bring this up earlier um usually dietary like can an animal uh, some of the most largest animals that ever existed were during the um this this time period but um, as things started to die off, um, the cryogenic stasis that like the planet was in, um, the lack of sunlight, the inability to feed herbivores, eventually larger predators would just die or have to like become something entirely different to sustain themselves because what they would usually eat just doesn't exist anymore. So, like, yeah, you it, kind it, of get yourself into, into a trap right? there. Like as a, if you're a big predator, you can only feed on bigger things because eventually you're too big to catch. The small critters, and when those things go extinct, you're kind of done for. That's why it it ends up being like a dead end. A lot of times, you'll see it's things will get bigger, but it's hard. It's not. It's rare that you'll see big things get smaller again. And you now you'll it, and like we lost a lot of the big land mammal, uh, big land herb, herbivores. You know, at the end of the, the Cretaceous, and then we get them back gradually. It takes mammals a long time to get larger. Uh, but then we lose a lot of that when when the we start to have cooling in the Oligocene, um, when uh, you start, you know, South America and all that breaks off from Antarctica and you start to get that circum Antarctic current and Antarctica starts to cool. We go from it being like a world of of uh, forests and stuff to more grasslands and the cooler planet. One question yeah, that comes so to it, mind for me, um, which you brought up earlier about um, alligators and how they're more related to the, the prehistoric cousins. Um, what's an animal, since I know about like octopuses and how long they've existed on Earth and being some of the oldest living um, species on the planet, what's a particular animal that most people don't think of when they uh, think about like ancestral like um, relatives to dinosaurs that has like a, like a strong lineage to them? To dinosaurs, I mean, I, there's always crocodiles. Would that be the chicken? 
I always hear yeah, the that, joke that chickens are related to dinosaurs. I don't know the truth behind that. I've always heard that. That was funny. Oh, they are. I mean, you know, because when you do it cladistically, all all dino- all birds are dinosaurs, but not all dinosaurs are uh, are birds because you know they're they evolved out of dinosaurs. So, and it only takes a few mutations to get you to look and pretty much like a a, a dinosaur because. Uh, and their their skeleton is remarkably similar to a bird's, because you uh, I got from my nephews a book on how to make a T Rex and also how to make a brontosaur uh, skeleton out of a basically taking a chicken apart. You can take all the bones of a chicken and with a little bit of work you can turn it to look exactly like a a dinosaur skeleton. And it's very they're very close. Uh, there's a lot of things. That, there's a lot of things that are like ancient have ancient relatives that we just don't think about. Uh, like you, you mentioned octopus. There's like the uh, nautiluses that you see over in like new Caledonia and in the South Pacific that uh, there used to be the whole world was there. Nautiluses and ammonites all over the world, which are like, you know, octopus with uh, shells. Some were coiled, some were straight and they got to enormous sizes, you know, you know, you know, five, eight meters long. Uh, super predators like think about the giant squid but with a big shell and uh now that's funny enough they're making a comeback because there's been so much overfishing all the uh all the fish are gone and so they expanded those niches again in uh in the pacific the uh where, where the ecosystem's been damaged they're uh making a successful return Speaking of them as well, I've recently read a book called Below the Edge of Darkness by Edith Witter. She's a PhD um, professor who studies in marine biology, but she specializes in talking about like, you know, light and how light affects marine life. Uh, I thought that was interesting because she explained like her theory for like, you know, why example, the deeper you go in the ocean, sometimes you have more abnormal, larger creatures down there, such as like the giant squid. Do you um, have any thoughts on that at all? Like, you know, why the deeper you go, animals get bigger at times? Sometimes it's just if you're a little bit larger, you you can eat anything you come across because down there it's kind of a crapshoot what you're going to run into to eat. And you want to maximize your choice for every meal. Because I noticed that like when we're down there with the ROV and stuff and we're super deep, you see lots of you see lots of little critters. Um, They all get attracted to the light and and you see the those odd grenadier fish and other little shark, uh, other sharks and stuff. And everything's always ready to eat. It, the big things that you always see every time are the big isopods on the seabed. Those are uh, like the roly poly bugs. You see them in the, in your garden, but you know, these things are, you know, a foot across and they're down there and anything dead, they will scavenge onto immediately. And they're any place. There's a place to hide or to be there. There, those and crabs are, are all over the place like and large crabs we'll see that and i know the japanese eat eat the big isopods and they're super expensive so but that's on my list to go f- try to catch items 
Now I want to yeah, ask but... you a very uh, interesting question that I thought, uh, who better than a paleontologist to ask this question? What do you think, uh, if we were to just be able to like revive the genetic code perfectly and um, clone a creature from that uh, period, um, what do you think would be the most efficient hunter? I mean, granted, evolutionally speaking, due to like, like granted, like it would be sometimes suboptimal, but in some circumstances, due to like environmental things, like external of just the ability to hunt, they died off. But what um, animal from that period of time do you think would be a very successful like creature in the current day? Ooh, I mean, I wouldn't. I want to you know, just instinctually say uh, like like a Utah raptor or something, just because they're reasonably smart predators. They're efficient. They hunt in packs. They uh, to take down large animals on it and you know that's kind of a, a you know like everybody's going to say that almost because of jurassic park but I, th I think that that was one that that hits right because they, they're just they would they would function well i mean grand not maybe not today with all that people and everything limiting their prey choices but you never know i mean they're smart raccoons do pretty well here um those are a, a smaller raptor might might do better because the little little pack hunters could fit in to any environment and take down predators. There's a lot of you know maybe more aggressive kind of land crocodiles and such that could be good too because they tend to do well in lots of environments and don't require as much food. But they're more dumb predators for a of for like a, some sort of rap, raptor would be better as a smart intelligent hunter. And in the ocean, that I don't know. There's there you got a bit of an arms race, and things have gotten better. You know, bony fish have gotten better, and sharks have gotten better over the last you know 40, 50 million years. So those are more efficient. But you know, I'll go back to that one and say uh, natural fan of the mosasaur on that one. Because you got small and you got large, and they Ooh. they do well, and they go up to lar uh, the cooler waters where plesiosaurs and stuff wouldn't be, and where sharks don't like it as much. Yeah, um, thank you for asking that question. Um, in terms of like animal that's really fast and um, it it's like it's it's leg extension almost is like similar to some degree to like a kangaroo. Like at least in terms of like when I look at its hind legs, and so there's something very, very, very dangerous about something that is like fast, speedy, but very compact. Like it's hard to be able to notice it up, up, off, off the sighting of it since it's so small, and usually um, that's how they are equalized to some degree. While a lot of animals may be able to use sheer force, they were a collective. They operate and move as a collective, similar to like how hyenas hunt. Yeah, there's hyenas are kind of neat because they're more related to cats than they are dogs and everything. And there used to be like a hyena here in North America, and it was really widespread. And the funny thing about it was there was a we used to have these hyraxes that lived in North America, but they're gone now. But they were you'd find those everywhere, and those hyenas used to be really common here, and they would tear apart everything very good at eating critters and chewing up bone. And that's another thing that North America had was these giant pigs that used to be here. We used to have these uh, oreodonts that used to be everywhere. There are millions of them all over the place. I've got some skulls and skeletons here at the house. 
but they uh, they used to be the most common animal in North America for the longest time with, with these pig uh, pig relatives. Very cool here. And that that's a sketchy thing. And there was another kind of intelodonts in that were also like a pig-like creature that seems like that would be a super scary critter to have around now. That would be very efficient because you know wild boar here in Texas are insane. And up there, and now I, I was told they're even getting into Canada and being a problem there now. Question: um, Being someone who's been able to observe like the lineage and ancestry of many animals, what do you think is a um, what would you argue to be probably one of the most vital traits when it comes to evolution? General is uh, being able to be um, a generalizer to do a generalist rather to do be able to be efficient doing a lot of different things. And to make take advantage of whatever conditions are, are there, because uh, specialists tend to to lose out to the generalist, because if you, once you're specialized, you get too focused and you can't um, take advantage of all the changes in environment conditions that pop up all the time, especially yeah. in climate, big climactic disasters. You know, it'll it'll wipe you out because you just don't have that ability to to go to another food source. Um, primates are really good at eating like nuts, berries, fruit, and all sorts assortment of foods, which like really like, helps them out in all these environments. However, when you yeah. look at someone like a panda, a panda can eat other like food, but is just like addicted to like bamboo and it refuses to eat anything else other than bamboo. And um, or um, similarly, if we were talking about predators, if there was a predator that became such an apex that it it it, it devoted itself and mechanized itself to such a degree in which it was capable of taking down only elephants um naturally it would only make sense that its dietary habits would have to consist of like all the nutrition that came from a, a um an elephant resulting in if it ever became extinct all of its tools all of its weapons are like not adjustable um for other animals or creatures yeah absolutely yeah, that, uh, you see that a lot because uh, that, that happens every time because you'll have a, a good system that you know things will be stable and it'll flow along and then everything will get hyper specialized and it just takes one little thing to throw the thing off completely off. Cause um, if you step back to like the Permian, when we had yeah, uh, the break of Pangea, we had uh, all kinds of terrible effects there. We had a real um, near collapse of the whole ecosystem on the planet, uh, planet, uh, just in crazy global warming because, because all the vol volcanism and the um, flood basalts, and everything were covered up. Basically, uh, Siberian traps covered up most of uh, Asia with, you know, you know, kilometers of lava, and every, uh, the whole ecosystem started collapsing. One thing that, that survived was a uh, dicynodont, which a, a distant relative to us, like it looks like a piggish kind of thing called a listrosaur. That was the most common creature on the planet, and it was it did it because it was just a generalist. It ate, you know, any kind of plant, you know, anything. It didn't really matter. Roots. It, did, it just dug around, and it could survive, and it and it, it made it through, and that that's what generalism will do because there was like perfect. There were better. There were great predators before that, and they didn't make it because they just they had to to feed on you know critters that weren't there anymore, where these guys were just able to make it on the margins, and that that sometimes for the evolutionary is, uh, successes of what you need just to make it on the margin. Now, um, if I could bring you into, um, like, when it comes to, like, um, some of the uh, animals that currently exist, or um, who do you think has, like, the 
um, best tools for um, survival. Like, like uh, of course, adaptability is a part of all those, but like, what would be an animal that you would say, um, indefinitely, this animal is going to be around for like the next hundred years? Like, what would be an animal you would, um, you you believe you can probably place bets upon its survivability? A rat, Norwegian rat. <laughs> I've heard that recently. Yeah, like rats are very like. <laughs> it's like um, cockroaches. They're just like going to be around forever. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, uh, it's it's got that you know kind of that great size. It doesn't require a lot of food. It breeds at an early age. You know, they're quite feisty. And you know, evolutionary uh, looking at it, looking at them, they could if they survive. You know, they could speciate into multiple different things later on. And, you know, they they'll do good. Raccoons are. Sp- they seem to be expanding their range and doing better. You know, now that they're in Europe and they're in Asia, they're doing pretty good. They do great here. There's lots of um, things like that. It's small generalists that always do really good. I mean, you know, we do pretty well, but you know, people are. I don't know. I, can, I don't know if, how well we'll do over the long it, run. <laughs> I find it interesting that you brought out rats too, because I was recently um, listening to a podcast. Discussing, you know, the wildlife after Chernobyl, Ukraine, with the whole incident that happened. And apparently, the only creatures that really stood around that wasn't, like, died out immediately were roaches, rats, moths, and catfish. Those were the main four things that were still predominant. But they had very unsettling changes. Like, they just refused to die, so they keep reproducing at extremely high rates to, like, live. And... It's weird how, like, especially rats, like, they have this survival instinct that kicks into them, whereas, like, if they feel like there's a possibility of them living, they're going to fight and try to live as much as they can, even if that means they have tons of, like, mutations and whatnot. But that was, like, really interesting looking into how, like, you know, even with, like, a nuclear reactor imploding, rats were still just able to, like, hang out in that area and be like, okay, yeah, we could do this. And it's something interesting with those animals that they, like, adapt very fastly. Oh, I think that's very true. I mean, I I also wonder, like, what you know, what kind of the effects the mutations would have later on. I mean, you know, they may not be great big things. You know, they're really apparent, but maybe you know, you'll get a more efficient rat. You know, they're more resilient, maybe better healing, maybe a little bit, you know, able to get more nutrition and stuff. You you just never can tell. And catfish are so neat in that they spread everywhere and are. And really do quite well, you know, because they're one of the most common freshwater critters because they get everywhere. Like we've like I see uh, South American catfish in Florida now and and the Rio Grande, they do quite well. And wherever they go in those wells, catfish are all over Europe now and they get to enormous sizes, especially over in Spain. And what was it? The wells catfish is over in uh, at Chernobyl too. all that uh, Jeremy Wade thing with them on, on there. They're just super impressive critters. And what I found interesting about the Jeremy Wade incident where he got special permission by the government to go there and fish for catfish for like, you know, marine biologists basically research because they want to say like, we need research to catch this thing. We want to like examine it. It grew freakishly large, even for a catfish, because the people don't know catfish, they eat literally everything. They are the bottom feeders of freshwater ponds and everything. They just eat and eat and eat, and they'll keep growing. But for why? the area of Chernobyl... Like you just want to add on to what you said, yeah. which is why it's like an iconic fish to um, breed and like um, serve to the masses, because you really don't have to be picky about what you're feeding. 
Oh, absolutely. It's just like tilapia. Yeah, exactly. they, they yeah. crap. And as for people already know, I'm a Georgia boy, so I love catching catfish because we are, I would argue, the capital of catfish in the United States. Like, we have the um, Chattahoochee River going through, and we have the most different varieties and breeds of catfish, all the way from the flatheads to the blue catfish. All the catfish under the sun are over here, so it's always interesting seeing what seasons or where to go to catch them at. But they're definitely a marine life that fascinates me a lot because they are very resilient and stubborn and they don't have high standards when it comes to eating they'll eat literally anything so that's just something i find interesting about them do you have you caught those little uh matoms those little teeny catfish they're kind of fun those are really hard to catch recently but yeah, i've caught a few of those um i'm currently on a journey trying to catch me a blue head catfish but it's funny people don't know too for catfish they're very loud out of the water they sound for anyone who plays minecraft like a minecraft villager they just make a meh meh sound like constantly yeah. i was like oh my gosh would this fish shut up i'm like hey pop him in the head i'm like quiet i'm gonna release you those in the drummer are super fun with that um they make all the, the strange little they make all the strange little noises uh, we used to catch catfish. We would uh, run trot line and catch uh, catfish and turtles to eat back when it was still okay to eat turtles before I knew better. And they were all very tasty. Uh, big channel cats, big blue cats, and you know, and flatheads. And sometimes, uh, oh gosh, there's ones that always stir up the pond. They're small. I forget the names of those. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too because. Quick story, when I was going fishing near um, Robinson Creek, which is a pretty good place for catfish, um, it was near the end of the day, and I casted my reel, and I was able to get a really big boy, and I pulled him in, but I was measuring him, I'm like, is he long enough? And then the whole time, he's like nonstop making his loud, like, yapping sound. And then he was just below where I couldn't bring him home to clean or anything like that, so I'm like, oh, that sucks. So I'm just sitting here, and he's still going. I just look at this catfish, and I get my hand, I, like, palm him, like, right in the head, and it felt like it hit like one of those Chinese dong. It was just like hollow, basically. And I'm like, there was not a single thought going on between those eyes right now. And I had to tell him, I was like, I like I jokingly told the catfish, like, hey, I'm gonna release you. And he's like stopped making the sound. He looked at me and then he took an inhale and he started like making it loud. Meh. And I'm like, all right, that's it. I chucked him into the water. But <laughs> a week later, my best friend went fishing there and he's like, Yeah, I caught me a catfish, but I had to release him. He's just under. I'm like, oh really? Can I see a picture? And this has been kind of a joke for my work, but I see the picture of the catfish. It looks exactly like the one I caught, and he was in the same place I was. I'm like, that little catfish is going around eating everything and then playing dumb and get released. So he's either <laughs> the smartest animal in that pond that pretends to be really stupid, or he's just lucky. So that's like the joke going on with the catfish, basically. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, one thing down here is I noticed they have these big catfish farms and i don't think the cat the flavor of the catfish that comes with the farm raised catfish anywhere nearly as good as the wild caught ones and people will, will complain about the muddy flavor or whatever but i think a wild cat fish has an actual flavor of of the area and tastes much better because it's just like farm raised versus wild caught tilapia you know farm raised tastes like garbage to me but wild isn't so bad yeah, agreed. And you can definitely taste the different flavors and stuff. Are you mm -hmm. actually going on to like farm raised marine life and fish in particular? Would you be worried that that would make the fish more stupid, if you will? So we're kind of like, 
I don't know how to put this, but like genetically raising and mutating them just to be like more dumb because they're constantly getting a food source and they're in a closed environment. They don't have that wild edge to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, there is some uh, issues because they they get out of the containment like salmon do and then they interbreed with a regular population and they damage the genetics of because I've heard that several times and and also that the wild the uh, farm raised uh, like marine life like salmon you know they're more susceptible to diseases and stuff because they're in such a close uh, area and so that they can pass that on to the wild population and they use because and they use such heavy antibiotics on the uh, the farm raised stuff that ends up the antibiotics end up in the natural ecosystem and gets you know uh, bacteria you know uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria and another problem with that kind of aside is that we overfished the Manhattan and uh, such to feed these farm-raised catfish and farm-raised salmon and other stuff. And that also affects the ecosystem too. So you're doing it like a double whammy. You're not taking, you're not overfishing that, but you're overfishing something else and you're fishing lower down. There's only two alternatives when it comes to like human supplies, either you're getting not the real thing because it's probably far too expensive to constantly get it to people like wasabi or ah, wait, hold on one second. Uh, all good. Yeah, another thing too, organic, the reason I bring that up is because I've been in arguments with vegans before and I asked them a simple question. What are we going to do with all these domesticated farm animals once, you know, veganism is applied, you know, like, because their goal is have like a na- nationwide veganism. And I was told we're just going to release them all into the wild. And I couldn't help but like laugh at that and feel bad because it's hard for me to explain to them what happens if you're going to release domesticated animals for hundreds of years. Just into the wilderness like it's not going to work out well and most of them are probably going to get eaten by either wolves coyotes bears or any other wildlife like snap like that and that's something i'm worried about for like you know what i was bringing up with farm-raised fish where it's like hey we eventually just release a large swath of them into like the natural wildlife and that's going to like greatly affect the already wild you know fish that are there the same species and like hurt their chances of survival Oh, I think that's very true. I mean, there's a lot of concern with that about, you know, they bring in fish stocks when you, um, you know, when they restock uh, streams and stuff with, with trout, because you'll bring in different genetics and uh, it changes, you know, the fish population there. You know, they may, may both be a brown trout, but you've brought in a one that, you know, with a different strain. So I, I'm kind of with you there. I mean, I understand where the vegan people come from and, they don't want anything to suffer. Nobody does, but you're, it's that's just built into the system. You have to you, you have to do it humanely, but you do have to feed everybody because we'll starve. And and the uh, domestic stocks also, you have to think about take them into account and think about preserving their genetics. And because right now you know that is a problem where we're losing all these different breeds. I mean, thank God people have started raising heritage breeds of pigs and stuff. But we've already and sheep and cattle, but we've already lost so many, and you know it's a niche thing. And we that's also with in terms of uh, I was looking into it like in terms like um how we like constantly like keep up like maple. I, I, when I looked into maple syrup and um how so they can say uh well it doesn't have to say pan it had to say maple syrup it can be called pancake syrup. That's like a, a way it can get away with not being the real stuff because it's far more expensive. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Like if you buy something that's called pancake syrup, it's technically getting away with not having to be maple syrup. Oh, I, I like maple syrup and I like the birch syrup and the other syrups that you get. And it, like I noticed now that like you buy, it's more expensive because uh, like I always prefer grade B maple syrup because it's a darker, more robust, robust flavor. And like maple syrup now you'll get first, second, and third uh, part of the run. Like the really specialized places will sell you that. You get, you know, the initial bit of the run, that mid part and, yes. the, and the little tail ends. And so, you know, they'll hit you on that those price points. And like the price of birch syrup has went absolutely through the roof. Like uh, one of my coworkers works up in, uh, he lives up in Canada. And so I'm looking forward to next spring's maple run because he's got so many trees on his property. And you you just, it's it's such a beautiful flavor flavored thing. And like people don't think about all the individual varieties, like when you where you get your maple syrup from. Like, you know, I, I got it from up in Rhode Island. It was quite nice. And you get it up in Maine. That's nice. And different parts of Canada have different flavors. It's all with that different little bit of mineralogy in the soil. And it all affects the taste a bit. Bringing that, that's bringing that up oh, too as well. Sorry. Bringing it up too as well. Um, I, I like as a hobby brew mead and I'm talked to the local beekeepers in my area, my community, and all of them have brought up the common issue of saying China, what they're doing is instead of having natural honey that you get from bees, they add a lot of other ingredients into it to make it very diluted basically just so they could flood the market and have cheaper honey but it's not real honey if that makes any sense oh yeah they fill corn syrup in yeah they, they pour a lot of corn syrup into it too there's a beekeeper in my area if i could find him i wish i give him a shout out for guys name off the top of my head but he has a small youtube channel he did a video testing you know the potency of like his natural farm raised bees honey compared to one he bought from like a made in china basically and it's near a 70% different in quality, which is insane to me. But that's definitely something I worry about a lot. Uh, every time I travel, when I go international, I always try to buy local honey. And I do that even in the States. Like, each of the honeys have such a different flavor. Like, I noticed over there in Delaware, they had the uh, uh, butterbean honey, which was neat. And up in Rhode Island, they had the uh, 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 oh hydrangea honey, which was an absolute light, delicate flavor I've never had anywhere else. And then, like in uh, uh, Malaysia, I got this weird, dark, bitter, bitter honey. Not Maluka, but it, it was the it was super bitter and it was strong and really good, absolutely unique. Never had anywhere made by forest bees, uh, you know, unlike our honeybee. And I was like, wow! But you just everywhere you go, you can the unique varietals of honey are so special and such an important thing. Like. I'd say I got a shelf of honey in my pantry just for all these exactly. different kinds. And they honey all make is such a very vast, different flavored thing. It's insane. Like It's almost like, you know, especially with mead, like if someone gives me mead, I'm at the point now because I've been you know consuming it and been in that hobby for a while, I could taste if it's good or bad mead by the honey, if that makes any sense. I know it sounds really weird, but you could definitely taste a large difference depending on the area. Absolutely. Oh, no, it, it makes sense. And if you like, uh, it's similar to um, Parmesan nowadays, how it's aged, um, typically you can get away with like about 10 months of aging, but still be considered Parmesan, at least in the States, well, as uh, it's standard for it to be a year in time. But like grated Parmesan is, um, can be rice, 
a grinder Bryce and a Woodpole. So combination of yeah. those two like as it's like which is uh very shocking. So if you do use grated cheese, uh just be just be aware, um, at least in the green bottles, um, that there is a substitute <laughs> as um being provided there. Yeah, because I'd heard they put cellulose in it. Because I I noticed that I went to the the real grocery store and bought uh the you know that Parmesan yeah, I can't pronounce it the 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 good one really super aged and the texture versus the one in the store that's supposed to be the the aged one in the regular like chain grocery store is unique is totally different because you know the other one has a the real you know while it has the crystals in it are distinct and it has a sharper consistent flavor where the I guess rapid aged one, you know, from the regular grocery store is more like just crystally and it it's it doesn't have that same co- uh, coherency to the whole mouth feel. And I, I know it wouldn't it might work in soup and it'd be fine, but the other one is much better, especially on a cheese plate. We're just making a cheese plate last night. <laughs> so that's stuck in my mind. Going on a bit of a different tangent, going back to night wars. Oh, go ahead, Az. Last tidbit I thought was interesting is that like um, what you brought up was very interesting of like cutting corners. Tonka is a uh, is a um, vanilla extract that is used um, that's drastically different, and the 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 process for making vanilla extract is so laborious that people can use substitutes. This is different types of oils that come from trees, but Tonka is like actually pretty dangerous to like encounter. Oh. So, I didn't know that. Well, what was the name of that one again? Anka. It contains oh. curum. It's a C O U M A R I N. It's a it's a dangerous toxin actually. So like, if you ever get vanilla extract from like somewhere like Mexico, you 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 probably want to avoid it if that's possible. Or at the very least, look out for anything that says artificial flavoring because that's their way of like explicitly conceding to the notion that like yeah, this is not this is not vanilla like in the way you think it is. Yeah, because like when I go down to Mexico, they always have a bottle. Go ahead. They always have clear and a dark uh, vanilla extract, Mexican vanilla, and you know while it is pleasant, it, you know it doesn't have the same taste as like the vanilla like you'd buy here in the states. And I try to, if I'm down there, uh, buy the beans that are fresh, because um, you know if you go down there to uh, southern Mexico, they raise them down there, so that so those are pretty good and. It's like, you know, that the real vanilla flavor, you know, once you get used to it, you, there's nothing like it. You, there's a lot of things, a lot of things are like it, but nothing will fit that, that, that sense of taste that you get from that. And vanilla is such a simple thing, but it's so complex. Hmm. Uh, Sorry, question for Hazy. No, you're good. Question for Hazy, though. You're telling me that I shouldn't be chugging just absolute bottles of vanilla extract from Mexico every day? Because I've been doing uh. that recently. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard on a very um, trustworthy site, you know, very, very trustworthy with, like, I don't know, like, three followers, but he said that if you chug vanilla extract bottles, you could live longer, so I've been attempting that <laughs> only from Mexico, though, because it's cheaper. I think I'll get yeah, good results know. later. <laughs> you know what I realized, uh, um, and I think it still rings true, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, um, if you want to give it a blemishes, go for some Mexican uh, 
uh, um, vanilla extract. And soon enough, you won't have to ever worry about a blemish ever again. You know, that's the that's the, that's the hallmark of it all. It's the good it's good advertisement in my personal opinion. But another thing, I, I remember when I was trending a while ago. <laughs> sorry, I remember a while ago in Mexico. Um, some of my Mexican friends sent me this, but it was trending to get a lime and pour salt and vinegar on it and squeeze it together and rub it on your skin. And I'm like, that's equivalent to rubbing bleach on you. That's not going to fix your acne. It's going to, like, scar your face. I just, I'm just thinking to myself, who's making up these ideas? Who's doing this? Like, is someone, like, psyoping everyone to, like, you know, destroy their bodies? It's, 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 I don't know. I don't understand it. <laughs> People are crazy. Yeah. I don't understand. Good. Yes. What are you going to say? No, I said what you were going to say earlier. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, it was just basically, it, it speaks back to the idea of, um, you know, getting something for a deal. You might not be getting it for a deal, you know. Usually the idea of if you're paying for it, you're pay, if you're paying higher price for something, you're paying for quality. And that seems to still ring true. And even nowadays, when we talk about honey, um, you, using, you usually look for, like, raw honey. It's best to do that because um, a lot of it's made out of um, corn fructose syrup. Uh, a lot of it, um, and even then, it's funny enough that, like, the real stuff usually has the imperfections. It's it's more cloudier. It's a... It's a you know, it's a darker tint than typically what you're imagining. Not the honey, uh, not the golden color, clear colors. Like it uses like a darker yeah. tint. So it I always that, 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 it always reminds me of the saying, uh, "The cheap turns out expensive." And but the honey thing, when I was over in Egypt, one of the breakfast things they had there on the breakfast buffet was a big comb of honey that you could just scrape off. And I have to say that. I, I'm going to steal that. I stole that idea to use at the house, you know, because I bought a comb, you know, just to have, uh, you know, there at breakfast because it's so nice. And I found that people want to reuse spoons and stuff and they will absolutely ruin your honey because it'll make crystallize that least bit of moisture that gets in there because uh, people aren't taught that anymore to always use a dry, clean spoon every time you get honey. Yeah. Going on to that as a well. No, you're good. Sorry for the honey diversion. <laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, yeah, no, just going, yeah, trying to get us back on topic a little bit. But I was going to ask you more about, you know, geologist consulting. In particular, what are some risk assessments or mitigations you look for while, like, working on a project or associating with a project? Like, is there any geological risks that are, like, red flags for you? They're like, we need to, like, watch out for this? Or could you elaborate on that? Yes. Well, uh, there's a couple things. Like, um, the, what I look through is first off is high amplitude anomalies in my data set because I I can look at that by looking at the waveforms and stuff in the uh, uh, to in the seismic data and I can from that will give me indication if there's going to be gas and also structural setting and you know, other geologic sort of setting things and my best mitigation is to avoid it and just not go through it. Your second mitigation is is going to be caution as you drill through that section. Because you're gonna, you may have to change your mud weight and such. Because uh, your best is all your best thing with risk, just like any industrial thing, is to avoid it. Is to plan around it and not have it there. And your next mitigation is just to be prepared and like to have your proper drilling fluid weights and stuff as you go through. Because you, you're going to lose. You're going to expect as you go through into sand bodies and stuff. You'll 
if if I hit that, I could get a shelf water flow risk, which is it caused by having um, and like I had a rapid de- deposition in the area, and I'm, that that sand body is uh, has a lot of high fluid pressure in it, so it it'll be overpressured and it'll flow out. Well, because it'll be once I release the pressure, it could go up the drill string and up to surface, because I'm gonna lose the well, or it could be under pressure and I'll lose flu- drill, uh, the drilling fluid into it, and so I'll have to use a um, use something to stop that. Or uh, and then if the same issue goes if I drill through faults because I'm liable to lose a lot of fluid into that, it'll move up and down along the fault, and also fl- uh, faults can move, so that could. You know, if I'm a seismically active area, which sometimes happens, you know, it can cause you the casing to fail there, and those sort of things. And and you know, you may have to uh, go ahead and and change out um, your diameter and stuff to get in there because you you a lot of times you'll have to to do a, a you'll have uh, to do directional drilling to get into the window where you want to get into the reservoir at to get. Pump and it, it's maybe small, and they can make the pipe curve and do all kinds of amazing things. So it's pretty cool. And uh, other mitigations, like other risks that I have to look at are uh, just environmentally, like what is there, uh, like uh, what's mm-hmm. the what's the biotic life on the surface? Because we a lot of that's federally protected, so I can't interfere with that. And other stuff is like, what are my conditions to if if I'm going to be anchoring? Like, will I be able to get? Put an anchor there because of biotic, and also because of like what's the the bottom type, what kind of what type of anchors will I need to use, and like if I'm putting spuds down, you know, will I will I be able to get in there or will I break through once I start to load it? Because it if it's the material's not competent underneath it, it may sink, have a punch through. You know, there's a lot of little things like that. And what would you say would be an example in recent time of Let's say the worst case scenario for your job was it like a big project, not you personally, but like in the media or in the news around the world, something bad that really happened because some, let's say, would, mitigations were ignored. Macondo, Deepwater Horizon. Because I remember getting a call that day. Because yeah. uh, we, we got a call saying, Ed, we worked on that. And we're like, no, we'd worked a couple blocks over. <laughs> They're like, thank God. And then they hung up and. <laughs> It's the middle of the night. <laughs> and could you elaborate more, like what happened? I guess, or um, I on that one, I don't really remember what happened at Macondo because uh, I just remember that they uh, they had a blowout because blowout is pretty much the worst one thing that can happen, and it just kept flowing and flowing for weeks and months, and it changed the whole uh, oil. Uh, drilling in the Gulf of Mexico because they shut down everything for the longest time. They changed all our insurance requirements. It, it was terrible. And the BP spent so much money and it completely messed up like um, just the economy down there. Cause everybody got on board that gravy train and uh, there's so many bad boats built. Correct. In the Gulf of Mexico to oil rig, or am I thinking of a different thing? I'm sorry. What year did you say you broke up? Sorry, um, I remember hearing about this around, I think it was around 2008 to 11, where it was like some oil rig that was in the Gulf of Mexico that basically imploded and that caused a lot of damage and people freaking out. Are we talking about the same thing? We are. 
that that yeah. was the Deepwater Horizon was the name of the boat. Uh, Macondo was the name of the prospect. And um, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't listened to, and people um, were in rush. And you know, it's kind of as I remember it. You know, because I got to look back; it's been forever. That basically you had a a whole number of things that went wrong all at the same time. It's like winning the lottery and get and getting hit by lightning in the same day. It takes a lot to have that level of a failure. But the system is generally really re- resilient. I mean, because you know, I've only ever seen one one or two little blowouts and they've all been overseas like uh they're in venezuela when it was done really really poorly uh you know like that they, they, they it takes generally we can the system can hold a lot of problems because it's built for multiple redundancies now the problems are, you don't want to get the problems and you don't want to have to go to these uh fail safe things because if i remember right they didn't install a blowout preventer maybe uh but it's hard for me to remember that but uh, that's the that's the worst yeah, case scenario. So, on that. No, no, it's fine. And I you just, said more of like, no, you're good. You said more along the lines though. It was kind of like a freak accident, if anything. Yeah. Or was there like more corner cuts done? Because um, like for example, was, Chernobyl, that's a natural disaster. We know could have been easily prevented, but that's what happened. But for like the Gulf of Mexico, that you couldn't have stopped that. That was like a freak accident, correct? I think you, you it could have been stopped, but. But for the way to, to fail the way it did, it was incredibly unlikely. You know, that that, that makes it, it – it's just – it should never have happened. But everything – all the decisions that made afterwards were bad. Um, Like I remember going to a meeting down there with, uh, with the feds, and they were so, – because – in the water to get rid of the oil, which was the worst idea possible. Because it should have been left at the surface, and it could have been collected, or it could have been burned, or it would have just naturally degraded. Because the Gulf of Mexico is built on uh, with a lot of chemosynthetic bacteria in it, and the the kind of oil was was the sort that will easily degrade. It's not like the heavy crude up in Alaska, which is more problematic. And this would would have been fine, at, but the dispersant caused it to end up everywhere, and a lot of stuff was blamed on it that shouldn't have been because there's so much natural oil that leaks up in the gulf of mexico because the way that's the way the system is all these tar balls are everywhere and they've always been for all my life in the gulf and there always will be and they blame it on uh macondo but when they you go back and you do the geochemical testing on it they're different oils uh, different sources so it didn't have anything to do with it and uh, yeah it it was a big mess and, and i worry that the uh dispersants cause more long-term ecological damage to the Gulf. And they, what they did was they put, they wanted all these different dispersants used and put in storage. And then the feds kept changing their mind every few months. So you'd have these enormous warehouses and that all this money was spent on it and it all had to be destroyed. And so there was an incredible bit of damage to the um, economy and just wasted resources. And yeah, so that was, that's a bit of a problem there. And you mentioned earlier, too, with Alaska oil rigs compared to, like, Gulf of Mexico. What are, like, the main drastic differences, I guess, from, like, the northern hemisphere oil rigs compared to the southern? Like, is it so far where you need different people for different specializations? Or could, let's say, you just go work on, like, you know, a rig in Alaska compared to working in one in, like, Venezuela? Um, Well, up up there, it's all going to be much more regulated than it would be, like, in Venezuela or somewhere else. Because... Um, everything like Canada, Norway, you know, the up in 
you know, the, oh gosh, over there in North Atlantic and stuff is all going to be super highly regulated. It, it's like safety is like the absolute number one thing. Safety, it's safety, environmental uh, protection, and then production is a distant third. And like we, the rigs up there are just like state of the art. Everything is, you know, pretty much perfect. And, you know, we have, you know, we watch everything like like a hawk. Because when I was there, we, you know, like we saw walrus. We had to shut down. Everything stopped till that walrus moved on. We had to report to the feds. It was crazy. Um, we have all kinds of stuff. And then, like, you know, North Sea, super safety is absolute top number thing. Uh, you know, environmental. We, we watch stewardship is absolutely key. In South America, like Venezuela, nobody gives a damn. It is just scary. It is dangerous. Um, I know geotechnical. It's like the heart of darkness down there, basically. Oh, where it's just all you oh, profit. Oh yeah, I mean, because like it, it, it was a, uh, oh gosh, what is the Venezuela National Oil Company? Uh, um, Sitco. Uh, oh, yeah, those guys, and because BP and all of them were down there, and they tried to, you know, they kept high standards when they were there because it's BP, and they did great. Um, and all these other people, and like the when the majors and in, in, uh, transnationals work in. Uh, Africa, they keep absolutely high standards, top of the line. You can't, there's nothing goes wrong when it's low, when it's the smaller oil companies or CNUC or, you know, like the, when the Chinese work there and the local indigenous uh, oil companies work there, it's dangerous and sketchy and you wouldn't want to be there. You wouldn't ever want to be on one of the rigs because they don't care. Because I mean, like, you see in the Gulf of Mexico, it was sketchy like in the 70s. If you got hurt, you, you got fired. And it's not like that anymore because it's all about safety and, and the environment because they learned that it's so much cheaper to do business that way. And, you know, for public relations and for just being good stewardship and for government, everything has to be done right because we do it. Well, we do it right the first time and every time, but you know, a lot of other places, not so much. It's, it's a very sketchy business. Uh, I, yeah, I would say I wouldn't ever want to go back to that again. One last question. I'll bounce it over to Hazy as well. But I'm sure you remember in recent news past few years ago when Biden was elected, he came in and he did a very large Alaskan like ban on oil where he like prevented a pipeline and like, you know, Arctic drilling from not really a political perspective, but from more of your specialty in your field. Do you think that? he had a right to be worried about us drilling up there? Or do you feel like that he was doing more of a bad call? Like it wouldn't have been as bad if we drilled up there. Bad call. Um, the actual location of the drill is quite small. The pad is tiny. It haven't been up there. It's middle of nothing. Um, one problem that we're now facing is the, uh, the developments that for the, uh, the North slope, that keep the Alaskan pipeline flowing. Are you know they're aging out. They're there's not going to be enough oil to keep that thing flowing. You have to have so much volume in there to flow, or you know it'll solidify up because that there's a lot of um, oh gosh waxes and stuff in in that oil, and it has to be kept going, or you know you'll have problems. And it was a bad call, and it didn't take into account the people who live there, the people who the native tribes that lived on the land who really needed that oil. To a lot of it was mostly outsiders and people that don't live there to to say that, and I think it, it should have been 
drilled because the nation needs it. And I mean, there's lots of oil in the Chukchi. I found it. It's there, uh, and we don't drill it. It's just just because the government makes it inaccessible. But there's tons of oil up there. Yeah, something I noticed too, especially if you look at, we had a guest prior on our podcast who was a real estate agent, and he was speaking on like definitely how economies affects like the market. And I was looking into it, and currently in Alaska, they're seeing a mass exodus where a lot of people from Alaska are moving to Texas because unfortunately those big hard pushes and bans on oil rigs, which is a large part of our economy, not everyone could be a fisherman, if you know what I mean. So it's yep. forcing a lot of people to like leave their homes, whereas like we have fishing, mining, and like dr- like drilling up here. But it's an unfortunate situation. I hope maybe under a different administration we could have a, a revisit of that topic, or maybe consider drilling, not only for like the natives there, but to give us a chance maybe to compete, compete with OPEC. Because I know OPEC is kind of like the mafia when it comes to the global stage of like oil, if you will, where it's whatever they say goes type thing. They have a pretty tight monopoly on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of resources that could be uh, used for everybody's benefit up there. I mean, you know, I don't know about some of them. Go ahead. True. I was saying true. There is like certainly elements that could be fair and uh, could be used. But um, I I think I remember something to the effect of uh, the optics of it all. Like, you know, I like most companies didn't bother bidding on drilling leases in participation of it being canceled. Like they uh, and then there was like little, little, little to um, very little, or at the very least, it wasn't sufficient infrastructure for the drilling to occur. So, like, I suppose if there was companies interested in it, I would say that like they didn't fight hard enough. Not to say that there wasn't people skilled out there that could have done it, but I think companies weren't like willing to put like the money like upfront to um, to really push for like the drilling in those particular particular areas. So, it's hard to put put your money out there because when when they if they take away the rights, you don't get your money back. When once you buy the blocks, and so I kind of understand. It's like nobody wanted to bid for the uh, wind farm blocks down in Texas this time when they had the lease auction because nobody bid for it because they were concerned. You know, it wouldn't be w- worth it if they reg- put some kind of regulation on. It. And the the we had low participation in the last uh, Gulf Mexico lease sale for the same issue because they just keep suspending things and put moratorium so. It's hard to do it because you you got to put that money up front and and before you even uh, buy the block you got to put a lot of money into buying the data sets to look into it and because you'll have a team of you know five ten guys look at that for a year or two before it it comes comes up for sale so there's a lot of money that's got to be spent on this before you can even make the first purchase. Sorry. Yeah. Um. I get what you're saying. Um. Some people, even people from the Democratic Party, was somewhat upset with the decision, saying that it will like prevent people from getting jobs in those sort of areas. And Republicans were talking about the war uh, on Alaska is devastating for not only Alaskans but like the energy security of the nation over there. So there were some reasons as to why, but also environmentalists also pointed out to, you know, um, retaining and um, ensuring the environments in that area. So it's a bit of a, it's a definitely a very complex problem. So like it's it's in terms of like Biden's decision and to approve of the enormous like eight billion Willows like drilling project in that area, um, the fact that like two of the lease or contract holders like kind of like basically canceled the like ownership of it, kind of like definitely holds up like the reasons why they would even be able to like transpire or like do more in that area. 
and uh, new regulations will like need to be done due to the um, lack of proper infrastructure in the area. But like that probably be, like the first thing they'll like to need to ensure. And since like the current holders in those contracts are not ensuring that mishaps are not occurring, I can see why there's a bit of a pause in those areas. So yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you get there and look at it. There's a it, there's a lot going on there. I, I was, when I was up there, it, it was pretty interesting. We we brought in a lot of uh, stuff to a lot of uh, equipment personnel and made a real push for it. And then unfortunately, everybody walked away, and so that that's a a sad loss. I mean, the data is still there, and we know what's there. So hopefully, it, it can all be going out again and if they reshoot the data we'll have now we'll have a 4d data set and see if anything's changed but it's very interesting geology going on that as well i wanted to ask you this question um sorry if this seems like a bit of a thorn in the side but for the whole environmentalist crowd the climate change people and like let's say greta thunberg specifically what would you say your opinion is of them? Like, is there some things they get right? There's some things they get wrong, or is there just a lot more that goes on they don't understand? Especially when it comes like a lot of the stuff. I mean, they have they have a some of them do it out of a positive thought for this, but a lot of them misunderstand the problem and they go about it the wrong way, and they they want to just stop all development and growth, and whereas. There's going to be growth and development, but it has to be done in a way that that is the most beneficial for for everything. Because they they do a lot of protesting stuff, but they don't have a lot of environmental uh, responsible responsibly uh, solutions because they don't they're not looking at the big picture. Like what we really need to look at is to me is biodiversity and you know protecting the environment and that that sort of thing. Where they just want to st- stop development when that that won't do any yeah. good, and because we really we, it's very it's very serious that we that and we have to protect it and we have to do it all responsibly. Like I'm to me, I'm concerned that we we don't protect the wildlands, we don't we don't keep and uh, maintain what we have. The uh, the Forest Service does a piss poor job at maintaining national forests because they don't do proper thinning and cutting and then we have these devastating fires and we have over over harvesting overseas where it could be done sustainably and you can work with local people and you create industry and and that would help a lot and it helped maintain these uh preserves and uh ecotourism is great and i think it's a very beneficial thing but you also have to get more people and you have to make it into a bigger deal so that everybody has a, is a stakeholder and can protect it and oil and gas development is part of that, and it could be done responsibly, and we've seen it done. It, it's when people try to go cheap and and dirty, and that's where we get the problems. Like, you see the crap in Nigeria and other places in the old Soviet Union. It, it all has to be done in a responsible manner. And you know, and I, I, that's the problem I find with renewables a lot, is that they want to they acquire massive amounts of strip mining and energy to get to that point, and then they're not sustainable for the long term. And like installations of the uh, solar things take up so much space and damage the land. And I see wind turbines on land that are exempted from environmental regulations and they kill so many birds and they scar up the prairie and they don't repair it to its uh, previous state. And that bothers me as well because the oil 
come just have to repair everything to the exact state it was before. And like the coal mining, like now they have to fix everything back and with the mountaintop removal. But even that, when they do that, they don't put it back where it's useful to the people. They just put it back as a jumble because that's all the, that's what the feds require and they can't make it flat for people to have good space. And that hurts the uh, people coming in, you know, that want to live there and want to farm it and make it useful. But yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and I don't like th- uh, Greta Thunberg and that bunch because I think it, it's another corporate uh, uh, tool because it sucks money out, out of what could be practically used to, to help and just takes it to uh, activists who aren't really environmental. And I think she's some kind of shill for something because she's a weirdo and I don't, I don't understand why anybody would listen to her. How Suppose dare that, like, you? Agree How dare you? Oh, brother. Quoting Greta Thunberg when asked basic scientific questions. How dare you? People are dying. It's just like, all right, corporate NPC number 86412B. Like, but <laughs> sorry, go ahead, AZ. If, if I was like uh, bet my money on like what a, when an average child is going to have in terms of like political literacy, it's kind of something to this effect. And especially even let's not let's not let's, let's actually widen the scope a little bit. Like when we talk about environmentalism, which I feel as though um, organic carbon is very like knowledgeable and conscientious of it, especially if, even in this conversation itself, we talk about how delicate environments can be due to an uh, overabundance of particular like predators or um, not Chris Hansen, but just like animals that exist within particular environments that like will cause like a domino effect of other animals and how they can like inhabit those areas. With that being understand, there were like people unironically in Congress during the early 2000s saying things in the nature of how is global warming happening when ma'am, what I have in my hand is snow. I'm like, all right. <laughs> like, unironically, people had to change the name to like climate change to global warming because the innate response of, hey, snow occurs every, uh, sometimes, possibly on a yearly basis, is not taking into account the incremental, incremental change within the environment that has been transpiring for quite some time. And even with like people who talk about like, Stopping things, I feel like they're being counterproductive because they're not looking at like nuclear fusion um, as an alternative for like s- sources and fuels, and we have to like slowly um, wane off of these alternatives if we want to like um, definitely diminish our uh, emissions. Like there's been a, a combination of fusion parts of electricity and gas, which I think is like a step in the right direction. But um, I think people are being very short-sighted because. Um, similar, similarly to um, people who look at landlords as an object, an abject, um, immoral in the system itself. Thus, are like very adamant about like making their lives as um, difficult as possible, but simultaneously, um, they're functioning within a system similar to you. So, I don't know where you get this moral decree to just be as vindictive as you are without like causing such a change to the system that as it exists and operates. So, yeah, something I definitely do agree with a lot of what you said there. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't agree with them, but made me spit my water out of the Chris Hansen joke. Just want to let you know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a nice big water, and I heard that spit out, so appreciate that, Hazy. I know he, uh, that's something we that we don't hear enough about because he was always he. That was a, a crazy show with all kinds of weird things that I never expected. Like, it turns out to be the chief of police or some teacher. Yeah, crazy. 
The funniest that, thing is that the last episode that got him in trouble and basically got his entire series taken off a line was, uh, I think he was following a politician who had been exposed. And the guy basically was like, well, not going to jail. Not, this is not going to the news. And he essentially just ended his life, which meant that yeah. he could not end it. Couldn't intervene in the same method and methodology he was using prior to this. Also, now Chris Hansen's online and now uh, interviewing people like Onision. Oh, not, not Onision, but he attempted to do so, as well as um, interviewing some of the victims of Onision's tyranny online, as well as working with a cop who um, doctored multiple racially motivated uh, um, targetings of individuals. So uh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Chris Hansen has been up to a lot. Yeah, no, I spit on the name Onision. That man disgusts me. If you even yeah. call that a man, more like a groveling worm. But yeah, sorry, let's try to get back on topic on this. Um, I'm trying to think. There was something I wanted to ask you earlier, Organic, where we you're talking about dinosaur stuff. Uh, what is your opinion of, like, I guess, fables or tales of, like, large monsters in the ocean or even, like, creatures and land? And an example for me I find interesting is that there is a place near like where um greece is located it's like a harbor like a passing way to go to like you know the southern tip of italy and in there is where you get the myth of cherubis which was no sorry Charybdis, which was a giant monster this was in the iliad i believe as well no sorry not the iliad the odyssey where it was like a giant mouth-eating creature that would like consume ships that walk you know dared trespass through do you believe like any of those like giant creatures could have existed at those periods of time, or do you feel a lot of it's just you know made up fables and tales? Uh, I, I believe it's a lot of it is misun misunderstanding of nature and like kind of building a story around it. I mean, granted that you know then there were still lions and you know giant bears and and such running around Europe and such. So there's that sort of stuff, but I think most of that that kind of thing that's not true there's some that i do believe are are possibly real you know you have you know relic populations of you know jaguars and stuff that hang around in americas and you have other things like that that could have hung on so i you know i don't know i mean in the ocean yeah i believe that there there's still a lot of critters out there i don't megalodon that i, I doubt because they're just not the ecological niche for it giant squids of abnormal size yeah big groupers absolutely especially things that we don't because now we've overfished and there used to be a lot bigger lots of really big fish you know the same uh, species and, and some unrecognized species absolutely giant large catfish i absolutely believe that there were some and still are you know out there i'd ask like dinosaurs in africa probably not because I just don't see it. Loch Ness monster. I, I don't see that as happening. But there maybe big eels. Yeah, maybe a, a abnormally large seal. Aggressive. Yeah, I can see that. Lots of things that could be around there are related to modern stuff or things that we know. But you know, they kind of skirt the edge of being a cryptid. But you know, are there Bigfoots? Quite possibly. I I don't know. It's odd that we haven't found one, but. You know what are they? Don't know. There's been so many reports, and and consistently they tend to vary region to region. Although is that cultural? I don't know because like you have uh, different reports of aliens or monsters culturally depending on what area you're in. So and even within different people within an area they have different folklore things. So 
don't know. Uh, although, what was it in Vietnam? There was a, a bunch. There's quite a few stories of of like a bigfoot like creature there from both the VC and the uh, Americans and French. So you know that's something. They know. Definitely too, and especially hearing stories about like Leviathan, for example, because the earliest reported stories on that were basically fishermen going too far off the wrong course and mistaking islands that were alone as being islands only to get close enough to realize that it's a giant creature that goes underwater the moment a ship approaches either that yeah. or you know like creatures attacking ships back then too like this was especially common in the northern atlantic with you know the sperm whales like you know from Moby dick and stuff like that where there was like reported like they would try rushing the ships basically or attacking them to get them out of sight but it's interesting that. about that yeah they're, they're a, oh gosh yes, like, so, i mean a whale is, if, is, yeah is a whale good. going full speed at you and just like wrecking your ship and you're in the middle of like hundreds of miles of ocean that's not somewhere you want to be oh absolutely i mean i could they're smart um they're intelligent predators they, they'd have they'd have enough experience to know what you know what's going to happen so they they might make the go at it i, I did one time in off cameroon see two large glowing eye looking things which i assume are were probably a squid or a fish or something but they were big like softball size off the boat and i was like um it's odd so you know there's got got to be things out there you know you never know what it is no definitely that's what i always find so interesting when studying and like reading of the ancient works because even the romans for example they have reports and stories of creatures that are now extinct today and it's like you know people trying to puzzling put together what it was like you mentioned earlier about the giant bears in europe there's actually a famous historical report by one of the legion generals saying like yeah i sent 14 of my men my best men into like the germanic woods and only one came out and then he's basically historically insane because he saw he reported a big creature with you know hands of knives like slashed like his platoon to pieces and to me i always find it interesting to think that you know there was even species of bears in Europe bigger than like the grizzly bear, like just massive, like outscaling, just destroying anything that goes into the woods. But stuff oh, yeah, like that feels interesting to read about. Oh yeah, giant cave bears. I mean, like, uh, you know, the Barbary lions are gone now and all that. And just, I wonder how long the uh, ground sloth hung around in, up, you know, in eastern North America because we find them in the relatively recent ones in cave, you know, you know bodies in caves in virginia i remember in southwest virginia they found them and over in uh arizona you found that and you found whole caves full of uh sloth poop uh, over there which dumbass has set on fire in just the last 10 years which is so annoying such a waste but yeah there's That's all kinds of stuff i know this is a bit off topic but regards of sloth there's some creatures i see in a planet i just scratch my head like how are you guys not extinct like panda bears or sloths or koalas for example like, I understand, I saw pictures of, like, prehistoric sloths, and they were, like, gigantic. They're, like, three times the size of, like, a sloth today. They're, like, bigger than people. They look more like orangutans, if anything. And then, like, you just see the sloth today, and it's, like, it's just really sad to look at, like, how far they've fallen from, like, their ancestors. Oh, yeah, yeah. There used to be lots and lots of, of sloths here in uh, South America and North America. It was absolutely amazing, the, the range of them, even semi-aquatic sloths. And they're terrifying because they would eat glip to because they had with those claws and they would eat carrion fight off, you know, uh, 
dire wolves and everything. I mean, they weren't to be messed with. That, yeah, you so make fun of existed like no. a limited version of a koala bear because i can't imagine something that like used to be uh competent and now it's just un- unironically a smooth brain it, 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 i was like not saying this facetiously not to be crude not saying this to even be rude they are literally smooth brains an observation of their brain i'm like oh there's no wriggles they're just um mentally a pair beyond like <laughs> Any like substantive recognition of anything? Well, uh, marsupials and monotremes are the older version of mammals, so that they don't have a lot to work with. And it's kind of interesting to think about like how they like transpire to this, where they're just most of them have chlamydia, they feed themselves, they uh, they are in, they have incontinence, they uh, they fall out of trees, and they don't know what to do, they uh. They'll unironically just sit in a fire and just be like, <laughs> I'm like, wow, these are this it? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's feeling really warm. I wonder why. Now I'm gonna stay here for a moment. It's like, oh no, it's in the wildfire. <laughs> you know, your heart goes out to them. You know, you're really going, your heart goes out to them. You know, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't. I really hate to say that too, but I hate to say that, but when I see koalas, I'm just like, dumbass fucking animal. <laughs> no, but here's what's worse about koalas recently. Australia, I think two years ago, had their worst forest fire ever. It killed 80% of the koala population in Australia. 80% died because they d- didn't know how to escape it. Like, they are just stuck in trees and they just unfortunately burned to death. And I just thought that's the saddest thing. Because like, you had kangaroos who were like, alright, time to GTFO. And then they started bolting out of there. And then you just have like, the koalas just stuck there. And it's like really sad because although, yes, I see them as being a very like dumb creature, they are cute to look at at times. And seeing a video of, like, you know, an Australian firefighter, like, go in there and take out, like, a koala of all the babies and it's covered in, like, black soot. I'm like, oh, like, come on. Like, why can't you guys just, like, you know, be better as a species? Like, we could have prevented this somehow. <laughs> I saw the videos of the lady over there that, that saves all the bats. No, nah, those fruit bats. And I always, I feel bad for the fruit bats because they're, they're, like, such no a to them. No, I want them to, no. If I had the choice organic, I would nuke every bat in the planet. I'd... That's terrify me. That's one thing people don't know about me. I have an irrational fear of bats and horses. Those are the two animals that terrify me where I'm not going to be around. Horses, it's that's a long story, but bats, I am terrified of bats. I hate them so much. When I was a little kid, I had family in Pennsylvania and I was helping clean a chimney out and I was small enough to go in there and when I poked up, I had around 15 bats fly and hit me in the face going out and that scared me and it's traumatized me as a little boy to the point I just don't trust bats anymore because I'm like, I'm you not know, going uh, around them. Yeah, you know, you did truly flip a coin there, Sola. Uh, on one hand, you became uh, irrationally fearful of bat- bats. And on the other hand, you could have became the Batman. Uh, you know, <laughs> in all honesty, that's a, that's a fair coin toss, you know, I, I think. No, if you know my Twitter, I am Batman. People don't know this about me, but I'm literally him. Like, I'm secretly Bruce Wayne, but no one knows. <laughs> When I was over in Borneo, I went climbing up through a bat cave. Well, multiple ones. And the day after, I was sick as a dog. I had the, I got the worst, like flu thing, and it was just like I couldn't. I had uh, body aches and cramps, and it just it was. I was so nauseated, and it went on for weeks. And I ended up having to take IV fluids uh, when I went back to Kuala Lumpur, and I was even sick. 
by the time I got to the States and it just did not want to go away. And I, and then that Corona happened. I was like, Oh my God, I could have, <laughs> I got the, the proto Corona from the bats. Proto Corona is crazy. You know, what's another thing I think is kind of quite fascinating. Um, just talking to speaking um, about animals. I'm not, like, afraid of most animals. I just, like, animals that make me nervous is animals that move like they don't know what they're doing. Like, they're still trying to figure out what their deal is. It's kind of what bothers me. Like, frogs, snakes, all those animals don't bother me. Like, it's, it feels like the movement has an intentionality to it. The bees seem to fly around aimlessly, and that makes me kind of concerned. I'm like, what's going on here? Why why, <laughs> why do you not know where you're heading right now? What What's happening? <laughs> Why do you have to break my proximity of like any sort of like personal boundary? Like you won't even land on me. You're just flying directly in my face and buzzing. Like, what is this in service of? Listen, man, they're terrifying. They're very ugly up close. They're not. I swear to you, like the Holy Catholic Church, forgive me for saying this statement, but I truly believe the devil had a role in creating those abominations. They have the ugliest, meanest little face, and then they just hiss. It's just so gross. I'm like. My vision of hell is me being trapped in a dark room surrounded by like hundreds of bats chasing me around. That it terrifies me. But Oh, they're like little sky puppies. No, more <laughs> like sky rats. Those are sky rats to me. I don't like have them. You a, have you seen a bat being eating a banana? It's absolutely adorable. You know, it's calm. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's... Is it true some species of bats drink blood, though, in like Brazil or something like that? Or like South America? Yeah, and then there's... <laughs> And there's stories about them coming up into Mexico and getting into New Mexico. You know, I've heard that, and I, maybe that's possible too. That's a one cryptid that I, you know, I could imagine happening. So you know, I don't know. Another one thing I thought was kind of interesting is that usually um, within narratives or stories, uh, it's like they just puncture into the person, sucking out the life force. Um, but uh, it's just kind of scraping and licking. It's like eh, you know, just a little. <laughs> Like, huh, this is uh, actually uh, far more tame than what I imagined. I can see why animals would be like, oh, whatever, you know, <laughs> that's Jake. We're going to be wrapping up the podcast too. Was that organic? Oh, I found it. It's funny. One day I found a dead bat in the yard and I, I went to go grab it and I was like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. This is how I get rabies. No. Because <laughs> we got tons of bats that fly around the house because they're, the, they're in the trees here, and which is kind of cool at night, but. Also bad, you know, because I, I worry about when my niece and nephews come over. I don't want them to get grab a bat out of a tree or get bit. I, I might have the rabies vaccine, but I don't want to use it. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I was going to say as well, we're going to be closing up our podcast soon. We're getting to that time. But is there any closing comments you want to leave for the audience in regarding to your field and regarding to anything else that to look more into research if they're interested in pursuing your line of work? What would you recommend? Oh, I would recommend the, f- the field of geology in general and petroleum geology, especially to anybody who's looking for a, a career, uh, like especially if you're just starting out in school. Um, they're super fun. You have the opportunity to travel the world. I've seen, I've been everywhere on the planet. You make a, a great salary. You have a good time. Every day is an adventure. If you want to be outside, you can be outside. If you want to be in an office, you can be in an office. Um, it, it's great. There's not nearly enough people. Everybody's aging out of this field. Um, I'd say my uh, my average the age of the people I'm around is 60s or 70s. Um, there's just not enough people in here. Uh, there's so few people. The skill level is dropping. There's a real opportunity for anybody here. Because I mean, if if you willing to go do it, you got to put the time in, put the work in. But 
it it's great you can there's rewards that you just can't imagine and you'll go places that you don't there's no uh, that are on the tourist map or or anyone would normally want to go but you'll see them and i got i, I wish people would do it and because it it's all going away and i, I don't know what comes next for everybody because like the classes here when i go to the university to talk or they they're they're meeting half capacity at best and you know graduate school is even less so it, it's it's a sad shape <laughs> but and i think that's a way with a lot of lack of losing confidence and skill but thank you all for talking i really appreciate the invitation and it was a pleasure having you uh, on our podcast as well definitely i hope it was interesting uh, i sorry if i wandered a bit there no no problems at all i love that just casually have a conversation that's what we do at the end of the day Hey, Z, you want to say anything? We always love it when um we always love it when people actually are as engrossed in the fields of particulars as you are, and uh you've gave us a lot of insight, and so I appreciate that as well. Um, little grit of book from but Kate at the at the towards the end, which was a bit cringe, uh, uh loser, you know, uh, a creep. Uh, now I'm just but um you know it was great stuff actually. Um, I, I enjoyed your insight about the subject matters, and the one thing that I always love from um experts within a particular field and most people might not is when they use certain terminology that is very like strictly to the confines of their fields um but they use them in like it's like common parliament like everyone automatically knows what they're referring or talking about but i love that like i, I love that because that shows how enriched they are in the environment that they're discussing um in terms of the podcast i think um we had an excellent episode thank you i i try not to be used to its jargon because it's easy just to get lost in lots of jargon that doesn't mean anything to anybody unless you're here. And, and that's so sad. That's a lot of technical discussions just kill everything. And thank y'all for having me. No, it was a pleasure. And you're always welcome back on our podcast. If you want to talk about anything else, but yeah, this has been solar Requiem. Uh, Hazy want to close us off as well. As always, this is Hazy Daleks and you've seen this all in HD.